Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and psychologist, Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes. The danger of living too many times. You forget to fear death. Fearing death, it's good for you. Welcome to Very Bad Wizards. I'm Tamler Summers from the University of Houston. Dave, on this episode, we're going to confront your greatest fear. Don't you think you should pour yourself a drink? <laughs> I got mine. <laughs> By confronting my greatest fear, is it, are you actually going to show me pictures of you showering? Because <laughs> if so, I'm fucking intravenously delivering whiskey. <laughs> I uploaded a... To the Dropbox, our shared Dropbox folder, I uploaded. Yeah, like it's a, it's actually a series of videos. It's like I think that what we learned from our last discussion of the Black Mirror episode um, is that we should all upload into the cloud really compromising pictures, right. just in case our simulation ever gets trapped in the Black Mirror. <laughs> That's it's a good handy. point. Like, I don't know what I'd blackmail myself with. I, I feel like I, I, there's 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 very little that I that I haven't that, that would surprise anybody. Like, <laughs> right, right. There's some bad shit that I've done, but yeah. Then then I'd be like, well, yeah, that's probably. <laughs> it's sort of yeah. It's like the Louis C.K. thing. Like, yeah, makes sense. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I'm not. I didn't. I didn't not think he would do that. <laughs> Just, um, you don't yeah. feel betrayed by losing. Maybe for you, it would simply be um, examples of when you were really trying to write analytic philosophy. You know? <laughs> like, I mean, those exist. You can't blackmail <laughs> me with those. Um, so today we are going to talk about another Thomas Nagel essay from Mortal Questions. We are just unabashedly tearing through that, and it is... The first essay in that volume, and one that if you haven't bought the book, which you should, is widely available online, and it's called Death. That's a great, great title. <laughs> Are you still as scared to... of death as you used to be? You don't talk about it as much. You don't bitch about it. I mean, I don't talk about it because I, it's just such a because it's so uncomfortable to talk about. Of course, I'm scared to death. Like what? What could have possibly changed? And you know, it was like we got a few more listeners, so now fuck death. <laughs> yeah, Sam Harris finally had us on his podcast, so now I'm ready to go. I'm just ready to. <laughs> you bet. No, I, I say that because remember, I had a little blip of oh, I get it now, and now I feel like I've lost that. I'm back to not being afraid of death. 
I don't know what happened. <laughs> well, we'll discuss it because I think that Nagel has an answer, which is the value of life is what should make us wary of death. And perhaps, yeah. perhaps I just value value my life a bit more. <laughs> Like your life is like has stuff to value in it, you know. But anyway, so uh, so but first we're going to well, I actually want to ask you a question that just occurred to me today. It's a philosophical question since you're the resident philosopher of the podcast. Mm, I, right. I have a I want to ask you because it struck me as a possibly interesting philosophical question, and um, and then we're gonna discuss that paper that we teased on the last episode and yeah it's the paper called is pulling the lever sexy the ontology is a down downstream cue to long-term mate quality and we'll put a link to that and and as soon as we're done with this cold question that tam was about to ask me which i admit makes me a little nervous whenever you have a cold question i haven't heard it yet i, I have no hint as to what you're going to ask none at all um, none. so this is a question that came after I watched something. I'm not going to say what it is. And one possible interpretation of the ending. And I'm going to say that it's not a movie, so it is a TV show. But I don't want to say what it is because for people who haven't seen it, it might spoil it. But there's, mo there's a lot of different interpretations of the ending. And one of them is that it's that pretty much... It, Everything that's happened, or almost everything that's happened on the show, is a dream of of one character. Right. So I was watching this with my daughter, and she just really hates that interpretation, that explanation of the ending. And I don't hate it as much, but I certainly feel repelled by it to some degree, as does many, as do many of the people who sort of are tossing this possibility around. And it just got me thinking, and, and you know, just in general, like you could you can pick a show where this has happened or a movie where this has happened. Were you watching St. Elsewhere? Is it is it, it St. Elsewhere? It's not St. Elsewhere, <laughs> but that's an example of one where I think I feel comfortable spoiling. It's a little different, uh, actually, because, you know, I, I did think of St. Elsewhere, but... Where the you know Saint Elsewhere was all just the kid in the well, that's the theory. I mean, yeah. and I think that it's it's ambiguous enough as to not be yeah right. But yeah. here's the question: Why do we hate that explanation so much? Why does it cheapen what we've seen so much? And let me just motivate the question. So one explanation is you know the the reality that we're just watching. It turns out that the stakes were nowhere near what we thought they were. All these state you were invested in these characters and the and and the stakes of the show was your investment in those characters, but um now you find out that those people didn't exist. Right? Like I think yeah, that's the yeah, that's yeah. the first like thing that you would say in response to that question. But the funny thing about that is they don't exist, right? <laughs> yeah. They're they're television yeah. characters that were created by the mind of the you know the the, the person or people who who imagined them. So um, so why does it make such a difference whether it's the imagination of the, the writers or the writer writers or it's the imagination of a character in the show that was imagined by the writer? Like, why do the stakes suddenly change so much 
for right. for that and why does it like why are we so willing to ex- to get invested in these characters that we know aren't real and so easy to dismiss the characters if we think they're the dream in the dream of another character so totally as a pure coincidence i recently had a similar conversation with my daughter like this week in which it wasn't it, it wasn't a uh, anything that we watched that ended that way. It was uh, her spontaneously bringing up to me, can you imagine if it had ended as a dream? And uh, I think it was a movie we were watching. I don't even remember. And she said, that would uh, she said, I would have been so pissed off. It, so exactly the same, the, right. the same sentiment, which, which I get. And, and so there's, there's a couple of things I think. So one, one, let's distinguish between the who shot Jr. Uh, was that was that when it was where where there is a a, a long running show, let's say uh, like the, there are a few seasons at Dallas, and in the middle there are events that are erased by this dream trope. Right there, I think it's a different question because you say like, okay, we're pretending um, to have been invested. And while we're pretending to have been invested, the writers, sort maybe they painted themselves in a, into a corner right. and they undid what they did with they this changed cheap their mind. ploy, right? Yeah. Um, but the question then is, uh, if something ends that way completely as the final ending, I get what you're saying, and I think it just has to do with the way in which we suspend our disbelief for fiction is not so simple as 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 it might seem. <clears throat> so while we understand for instance that um uh it's all fake there's kinds of fake that we hate because it violates the rules that we've been told we ought to accept. So right. in a TV show where I'm told to accept like I'm like what I understand the deal that I'm getting into by watching this TV show these are this is a story it's not it's not really true um and uh but I'm going to pretend as if it's true I'm going to say this is as if it were real life for my emotional investment. I think that there's a different level of fakeness that you introduce with some kinds of, of ploys, one of which would be it was all a dream. Others are when it violates – just violates other rules. Like, wait, it was never clear that this could possibly happen, right? right. This was never part of the deal. And so, so I think that we're pretty sophisticated in terms of how we suspend our disbelief about certain things for fiction but not about other things. Other things. And, it, and yeah. the question is why, like – the, the your first reaction is these characters I've loved and <laughs> right. cared about what happened to them. They were never true. They were never true. They were never. Yeah, they did that. that they didn't even exist. And right. it's like, but yes, they did. Just in this guy's dream or this woman's dream, rather than in the reality, the fake reality of the the television show. And like, I think that's a good point. That it really matters that it happens. At the end, um, yeah. it, it, to, or to make this question work, I mean, we just did a movie that I won't say what it is, but we talked about it where this happened, right? And yeah, and it actually is fine. It was fine for that, but yeah. you saw what wasn't a dream 
you saw a good amount of what wasn't a dream. And right. And, and I think importantly, the dream informs the character mm-hmm. in, in a way where like you, you say there is this real reality of this character who is, um, and, and we're gaining insight into this character's mind, their desires and their, their hopes and dreams by, by sort of, splicing into the narrative aspects that were actually dreamlike. But so what I want to ask you is, was the ploy where it ended all in a dream serving anything that would be useful? Because the question I have is why, like, why would you ever do, why would you ever end something like that? Like what, what purpose would it serve? I really want to talk about this, but I just can't. Like, yeah. but somewhere down the line, we will, and just okay. talk about what we're actually what it's discussing. Yes, I think you could absolutely have it serve a purpose. Let me, in, in a long roundabout way of answering your question, add another complication. I don't think people felt betrayed by the Saint Elsewhere ending. No, but I think that the Saint or the New Heart ending. So for for those who don't know, the Saint Elsewhere was a long running TV show in the eighties, and um, there was a I would say I don't know I never really watched it. There was a minor character named Tommy Westfall, and at the very end of the entire run of the show, there are hints that that all of the events were actually in the mind of this. I, I guess he was autistic maybe yeah. um child uh-huh. where the the actual hospital that was the center of the the, the whole plot um was in a was it a snow globe that he was holding yeah. like yeah. he had imagined the whole thing right and it's it's not completely obvious that 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 was in fact what what the writers were were doing but i think the ambiguity left it so that it's actually an interesting thing to discuss rather than undoing everything else. So I mean, doing a little research, I, I the, the stuff I came across sort of assumed that that is what it was. Okay, maybe. Yeah. But maybe not. But I don't think that there was a up there was like an outcry about that. There certainly wasn't with New Heart. People thought it was funny that you know, there was a show, New Heart, and then it <laughs> ended, right. and it turned out to all be a dream of Bob Newhart's previous show, the They're Bob right. Newhart show. And <laughs> I, I think everyone thought that was just kind of funny. It was like a nice little cherry on top of the, the series, right? Right. And maybe in that case, it's the it's like, you know, sitcoms are, are sort of standalone half-hour stories that entertain you, and it's not undoing much. To say right. that it was all a dream, but um, but saying elsewhere wasn't that, and you know people really did. I I was never a huge fan of the show, although I've heard it's good. But um, but I think people did get invested. But here's the difference I think between that and what I'm talking about is the dream closes out. If it's a dream, that closes out other explanations in the thing that I'm talking about. Right. Whereas. It's not like people were searching for explanations for what happened on New Heart or what happened on, <laughs> right, 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 right. on Saint Elsewhere. So there, it's like, oh, I, that explains, yeah, <laughs> like episode thirty-two. Right? <laughs> exactly right. It doesn't do any of that. It doesn't shed any additional light. It just right. adds. So there, like, it really is like, who cares whether it's the Saint Elsewhere writers or Tommy Wind, whatever his name is, little Tommy, right. little autistic. Tommy, 
whereas this actually like you know that okay so then all these other things that we thought were going on probably just weren't you know and right. one difference is it closes off hypotheses in a way that something like that doesn't right it seems it, it seems like a cheap way to clean up right um like i can imagine that if you go into something leaving hints uh, and on purpose sort of building to this dream thing it might be you might imagine if if it does some work of explanation and you think that the that the writers crafted this thing um but but here's where like for instance it might piss me off so um kevin spacey Right. One of the most minor problems of that arose because of the Kevin Spacey allegations is that uh, it's unclear what to do with the show because the character still exists and the character is central to that show. Imagine if the writers at the beginning of the next season actually had it that Kevin Spacey died in season one and this was the fever you know everything that had happened was the fever dream of him in his last moments and so we can reset the entire show this way right there i would say like well fuck that like why was i like i really genuinely say even though it's fiction i why was i invested in the fictional story of these people if there are no consequences now in the real world, in the quote-unquote real world of this fictional show. There are no more consequences that, that I need to, to care about. Um, and but what if they did that at, at the end of the show, like where there were no further consequences to care about because the show wasn't continuing? Like It right. seems like what's, what's motivating that is that the show is going to continue. Right. Yeah, yeah. So then there's a this this completely per, well, perhaps completely separate objection, which is it seems lazy. So here's an example of where I think not only does it work, but it's kind of integral to the decades long appeal of this, like the iconic status of it, Wizard of Oz. Right. That happened. I don't what? Know what you're talking? About. That really happened. <laughs> Well, like, you know, Dorothy wakes up and she's back there and you realize that that was all a dream. Um, the whole thing and, you know, all the, the wicked witches and the little Keebler elves and the, uh, and the Tin Man and the Cowardly Lion and all of that. Now, maybe that was the first major popular piece of art to do that. And so we're okay with it. But there is something about The Wizard of Oz that makes it okay. Maybe it's like what you said earlier. It it, it told us something about Dorothy. And right. And, and I think, do I, if I recall correctly, um, like black and white Dorothy at the beginning of the movie, um, it's a plausible account for why all of a sudden she's in a new world in Technicolor. With yeah. Like these, it's like right? a tornado or something. Yeah. Um, uh, and, and that doesn't seem so cheap. I mean, there are other ways in which, I, I don't know, like there, it's true almost just by definition, any discussion of these plot points introduces spoilers for every single thing we discuss. Yeah. But, but we could talk about something that's still going on, like Mr. Robot. If like it turns out that a big chunk of Mr. Robot was a, was a dream, like Elliot's dream or... Right. So there was some there was some like, for instance, in one of the episodes, it was unclear to me what was um, sort of a, a a pipe dream of like a heroin, a heroin hallucination and what was real. Yeah. Um, 
and and they're like sort of within within one episode within the series that that seems fine like that was like the and fourth, like, fourth episode of season one i remember that's a great episode yeah yeah it's the um, mulholland drive episode <laughs> there it's like okay well they're not fucking with it i feel like there's this there i think maybe what eliza is is getting at which again i i, I mean this isn't answering your question this is just sort of illustrating that i have the same feeling which is well why did they fuck with us for two hours or whatever why like like why are you going to go out of this way to make us believe in this world and then just yank it yank it from us yeah yeah i think that yeah there's a lot of world building i think the the ways that make it especially annoying is Okay, I think I've landed on something. If there's a lot of world building and a lot of mystery as to what's going on within the world. Yeah. Uh, and and then it seems like a cheap solution to that. Like, oh, I didn't want to try to figure out the complicated metaphysics behind this world that I'm imagining. So I'm just going to say that it's just a dream. And what you want is something more than that. And then, and then there's, I don't know if I'm repeating myself by saying it this way, but there is very much this, like, you know, when you talk about writing, whether it's, it's writing, writing fiction or writing, uh, like a, a novel or writing for TV, you say to yourself, well, you have to make the person care about the characters. Like you have to introduce real motivation. Um, why is this person doing this? You know, what's their journey? And, and it seems as if, by making it a dream, you've at least, at the very least, removed all of the motivation for all of the characters that were part of the dream. Yeah. Right. Like, you know, maybe there's still the motivation of the, the protagonist who's doing the dreaming, but all of the other ones are like, well, you might as well have not given them any motivation to begin with. But it's so funny because, it's, oh, before I learned it was just a dream, like it was life or death for me, whether, <laughs> you know, this character did that. But now that I know that it was a dream, like I have no attachment to them and it doesn't mean anything. And it's like... Well, either way, they're not <laughs> real people, right? Right. It's there's a it's there's funny. a loose there's a loose analogy to this, and I don't know if I've mentioned before, but there are ways in which um, uh, uh, you you have works of fiction that create a world, and they tell you the rules of this world, and they'll do something to violate that rule in a way that's really unsatisfying. Yeah, and. There's a really stupid example uh, that bothers me, um, but but what bothers me more is the reaction of people when I tell them this. SpongeBob SquarePants, right? SpongeBob SquarePants is a cartoon, and it's ridiculous. It's a ridiculous premise. It's an anthropomorphic sponge that lives at the bottom of the ocean. Okay, so like I'm watching this, and I I'm buying into the premise. I'm like, okay, this is a fucking sponge that lives in a pineapple at the bottom of the ocean, and he works at a fucking fast food joint in the bottom of the ocean. What bugs me the most about SpongeBob SquarePants is when they go to the beach, because in this world that I'm told is underwater, they'll drive over to a fucking beach. <laughs> <laughs> and they'll put suntan lotion on. And when I bring this up, people say, 
oh, really? That's what's bothering you? Like the fact is that it? there's a anthropomorphic sponge that lives in a pineapple doesn't bother you? No, exactly. It doesn't bother me because you've told me to believe in this. Right. And you violated this rule that, that I've been perfectly happy to to in, inhabit for the duration of this episode. And I feel like they're just, it pops me out a level. It takes me out of it in a way that, that again, there's like... <laughs> levels of of disbelief that we're comfortable suspending yeah and the dream thing has popped me out of that level that i've been inhabiting this whole time yeah right you're willing to give a movie or a show or a book certain ground rules and they can if a if they change the ground rules or b if they add a ground rule that just seems unnecessary and i think right. that the example my friend uses is my friend eddie gazalian it was looper where right we were right. totally willing to grant this whole like time travel like mafia way of disposing <laughs> right. bodies and all that but then there's also psychics like and to, like telekinesis it's like no 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 yeah, like yeah, like yeah. like we, we're giving you the time travel like don't also add like that there are these like telekinetic like 10% of the population are are, are uh, like you know can right. like, lift things with their minds like that's a different movie that's a different world and like this is the world and right. it's funny the way i i had that reaction too it's like yeah, although i liked the movie that that was that that did bug me a little bit it's like build your world within the already gigantic suspension of disbelief that we've granted you right time travel time travel movies are are particularly a good time travel movie is one that makes you forget about all of the like impossibilities uh, and all the paradoxes because because it just shows how willing we are to grant you know fucking michael j fox's picture with the like disappearing <laughs> right slowly to see fine i'll grant all of that right but like you can't add something all of a sudden <laughs> brand new right i i feel like there's a very similar dissatisfaction with other forms of like the deus ex machina it's like in the old batman series like they're being attacked by sharks turns out oh i have shark repellent in my utility belt that i carry at all times right it's like wait that's not fun at all <laughs> like you're just creating a brand new thing to solve every problem but um, yeah, ad hoc. We don't like ad hoc. <laughs> exactly. Only post hoc. It's funny. There is something about the like you know twelve, thirteen year old mind that I can yeah. see getting really pissed off. Oh, at, totally. Like, <laughs> she's not like she doesn't even want to talk about that possibility. <laughs> she's just like no, 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 no. Like you know. Um, uh, all right. You know what? I think now we did we talk too much about this that so we have to put the utilitarian one for another one. I think we might have. We might have, yeah. So yeah. let's get straight. Let's just go straight to death. Speaking of characters not existing, um, we'll be right back to talk about Thomas Nagel's death.
Welcome back to Very Bad Wizards. I'd like to take a moment to thank all of our listeners, uh, especially those listeners who have been active in supporting us. We really appreciate all of the discussion you've given us. I think I can say at least, I don't know about you, Tamler, I've been active on more active on the Reddit Um uh, but we have great discussions going on Reddit, great discussions going on Facebook. We've been getting lots of tweets and uh, lots of emails. So thank you to all of those uh, people who are taking the time to reach out to us. We do, again, read everything. Uh, if you want to get a hold of us, you can uh, email us, verybadwizards at gmail.com. You can tweet to us at peas, at Tamler, or at verybadwizards. You can visit our Reddit and dis- join in the discussion, a new a new post goes up every time we have a new episode. You can engage in discussion there. It's reddit.com slash r slash verybadwizards. You can visit our Facebook page, which is just facebook.com slash verybadwizards. Um, and you can even go on Instagram to our Very Bad Wizards account. Uh, I think I'm not missing anything. I think those are the ways you can you can reach us. If yeah. you'd like to support. If you'd like and to we do sup- read every single email. Like that's the Absolutely. one thing you can be guaranteed. Yeah. That we, I, I I can't say that I've read every single Reddit post, right? But right. I have read every single email that we. The nice ever thing gotten. about Reddit is that, and Facebook as well, is when you guys talk to each other. Yeah. Um, so our chiming in there is 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 it's really more I enjoy watching what you guys are saying. And actually, the other way of getting uh, to us is by going to our Patreon page. If you support us uh, by becoming a Patreon member, we uh, have actually started introducing even more rewards. So for those who would like to support us in in financial ways, you can go to patreon.com slash verybadwizards. We've introduced some new tiers now, and we just released our first piece of bonus content for our $2 and up Patreon supporters. Um, so we hope you enjoyed it. It was a discussion of a Black Mirror episode that we didn't discuss in, in our regular episode. And we, we have we have some stuff planned for the future. So we're going to keep doing that um, as a way to thank, thank you guys. Um, you can go to our support page on VeryBadWizards.com and you can see that there are a couple of other ways to support us. You can uh, shop on Amazon by clicking on our link and buying things as you would normally. And we'd get a little cut of that. Thank you for that. And you could also directly donate to us uh, via PayPal. Some people have asked if we can make rewards available to people who can't use Patreon but can only use PayPal. And I don't know the answer to that. I mean, I would love to find a way to do that. Uh, you know, Patreon is its own system and it makes it very easy yeah. for us to distribute to distribute rewards. So I don't I, I don't want to discourage anybody from donating via PayPal and we'll but if any listener has any good idea for how how, <laughs> how I mean, one possibility is depending on the the donation is we right. could just email them the, the ten thousand ten thousand dollar level. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> But we we really appreciate the PayPal donations, the one-time donations, and we are trying to figure out how we can um, address that. And Amazon, just great the way you guys are going on to clicking on the link and and going on Amazon afterwards. It's a it's a nice it's a nice boost for us. All right, thank you. The the yes, thank you all. I I think I need to take a Xanax before. Before discussing this, I'm going to have death anxiety. By the way, did you read that? Art, did you read that email from our listener who who was in Hawaii at the, during the time of the the fake yes. missile crisis? 
Fucking A, dude. We did get this email, which we'll t- we could talk about it in greater detail another time, but uh, from a listener in Hawaii, and they had reason to think about death not in a theoretical way, but in an actual, oh shit, this might be happening way, which I actually think animates the question of the paper a little bit more. Like, imagine if this is like the death and whatever bad that comes with death is actually something that you might experience, which I think part of the problem for me is I don't totally believe that that's real. And so like, so yeah, he emailed us and just shared his experience. I think we'll save maybe the details of that. It's John from Hawaii, but, um, but anyway, the, there's a question and all these people in Hawaii had to confront it, which is, why is death so bad? So right. we have this sense that death is bad, but why is it bad? What is bad about death? And I think Nagel, in writing this essay, is responding to a view that was first put forth by Epicurus and, and, and Lucretius um, that death is not something that you should fear because it is just oblivion. Like, we were in oblivion before we were born. That didn't bother us. So why are we so... Why are we fretting? Why are you fretting, in particular, (laughs) um, about, like, oblivion after your life? So that's one sort of question, and Thomas Nagel's initial answer to this is it's it's not that death is bad when being dead. It's the that it's that you're being deprived of of life. Yeah, and let me. I mean, let's. There's a distinction to be made here, which is he's not talking specifically about fearing death. He's really talking about is it a bad, in, in a yeah. rational sense? Can we say that it is a bad thing to die or to be dead? And and I and I want to kind of sidestep some of the issues like so there's some sidestepping of of issues that are clearly relevant that Nagel does that we can talk about it. But there's one I want to sidestep, which is because I can already I can already picture the emails that that some might send, which is, well, it's, you know, natural selection has just made us want to embrace life. And it's a stupid it's a stupid process that makes us value being alive um, because that's just the kind of psychological valuing that leads to reproduction of our genes. Like, fine, that's a a good psychological explanation for why we might want to struggle to keep alive and why we might fear death. But, but that doesn't answer the question of, right. There are a lot of psychological propensities that we might have because of natural selection that we realize are irrational and that we, in some cases can overcome in some cases we can't, but the question of whether or not those thoughts that death is a bad thing are defensible is the one that the Nagel is addressing. Is it really, is it really the case that we can defend what seems obvious Right. It might be obvious. It might seem obvious because of natural selection. Who knows? But but can we defend this natural view um, that that death is a bad thing? And I think it's not like we we're just like, ooh, death bad. You know, like spider is scary. Death bad. Like we have elaborate rituals that 
signify the badness of death. And we've thought about it. We've reflected on death quite a bit, like almost any human being has. And, 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 and it seems like, again, not necessarily rationally through some argument, come to the conclusion that it is bad. It's not, yeah. And that's not like a natural selection thing where we evolved to reflect on the nature of death and then come to the conclusion that it's bad. Like, I think to whatever extent natural selection played a role in our initial responses, it's more like try not to die. Try and not to be die. afraid exactly. of it. Yeah. That's and that and that's why yeah. that's why the fear of death question yeah. um is is sort of what prompted this. So so yeah, Nagel starts off, you know, he says, I wanna ask whether I'm quoting directly here, I want to ask whether death is in itself an evil and how great an evil and of what kind it might be. And he says, obviously, the death of people is a is a negative for others. Like if I love my friend and she dies, like it's bad for me. Right. But he, he says, that's not what I'm talking about here. I mean, just the value for the subject itself, the person who is going to die. Right. And so here, like, here's where, like, I think the Lucretius, so the Lucretius argument or the Epicurus argument is, is one that I, I had heard before, but I think as a Mark Twain quote. Yeah. Right? Mark Twain has a quote. It's like, I'm not scared of oblivion. Like I tried it for like 200 million years or whatever. And it was fine. <laughs> right. And I always thought that was, uh, and this is why I think I'm, I'm the good audience for this because I always thought that was clever and perhaps true and puzzled at why it gave me absolutely zero comfort. <laughs> zero. Like it gives zero. no comfort. No comfort at all. And I think what that shows is the thing that we think is bad isn't the – and this is Nagel's point, right? It isn't – it's not the – how that will experience will feel like or what that experience will be like in any way. It's not right. that um, right. because we don't think it'll be like anything. And so right. and I think what Nagel says here is what this should indicate to us is there's something else that's bugging us about death and it's not that. Right, right. So it's, 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 it's obvious that non-existence in and of itself cannot be bad because there is nothing that can experience that. Yeah. The state of being dead is not anything to be worried about um, because there is nobody to, to worry. Moreover, he says, look, like, you, don't, you don't have to even think about, about death to, to know that this sort of lapse of consciousness isn't that worrisome. Like we, we don't worry that much about being unconscious for short periods of time. Right. 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 It's not just that we don't worry about when we weren't conscious before we were born. It's like, we, you know, we don't mind so much if I have to go under for, for an operation. Right. Um, right. What we worry about is maybe never coming out, but not those, those, you know, those particular moments of not, not having any experience. So clearly what is, this is where, of course, the antinatalists would disagree, but it's that we are the, – the, th the bad thing that death does, this is his hypothesis, is it deprives right. us of the good that is life. So you can have – you know, if you have – if you die when you're 30, then that's on average about 
50 years that you were deprived of. You were deprived of whatever good could have come of those 50 years. And we, we can, that can cash out in lots of different ways. The good of, you know, my mom died when she was 41, which is crazy to me, but like she could, like she could have seen her grandchild. She could have, you know, her, she had a flourishing career in psychology and uh, on the emotions, actually. That's weird. Uh, (laughs) she could have like pursued that and and you know seen her ambitions in that area come to fruition and like all that was lost to her and that's the thing that's tragic about it that's what's bad about it right for her and for for me obviously but for her also right so he says it's an evil because it brings an end to all of the good that life contains but and i think it's it's there's a specific claim in here that uh, that I'm not I'm not quite sure of, and this this relates to what you brought up the antinatalism argument. So he says, "Well, look, life is a good by dint of just experience yeah. experiencing it." And he says, "He's he's he's not saying that everybody's life is a hedonic net positive, right?" He says there are times when the shitty parts outweigh the good parts right um his claim is that take that calculus aside like he says like control for the hedonic calculus of like whether there's you have better like more happy times or or fewer sad times or more sad times or more painful times he says that there is a value just in existing just in experiencing the things that you experience when you're alive like perceiving things and you know yeah so this is the quote and i had i had a question about this too there are elements which when it it, it, when added to one's experience, make life better. There are other elements which, if added to one's experience, makes life worse. But what remains when these are set aside is not merely neutral. It is emphatically positive. Therefore, right. life is worth living even when the bad elements of experience are plentiful and the good ones are too meager to outweigh the bad ones on their own. The additional positive weight is supplied by experience itself rather than by any of its consequences. So I think there's a couple ways of interpreting that, some more problematic than others. But one is... That just living, this is the way it make he he. It seems like from what he's saying, just living and just being alive can is such a good that it can outweigh all your negative experiences, or it can outweigh the like a a really significant net uh, imbalance where your positive experiences out uh, are outweighed by your negative. There's another, which is that the reason, and I don't think he would endorse this, but this is what makes the most sense to me, is that the reason that life is still good at that point is because it's still holding the prospect of when things get better. Like, so, yes, right now you're going through a bad swing, a bad phase of your life, but at a certain point, like the, the life is going to, like the bad things are going to diminish a little bit. The good things are going to increase and the balance will be better for you. But I don't think that's what he wants to say. Cause he's so anti-consequentialist about this. Yeah. I, I think that, that, that what he wants to say might be, I'm not sure, but it might be some, some third thing, which is that 
you can have the calculus of positive and negative hedonic um, you know, experiences and that um, that you can do that calculus and you can say one life is better than another or, you know, this I prefer one to the other. But that is built on a different value that is the yeah. more basic one, which is it can't be it, – it is not simply adding a constant of hedonic – um, positive. It is a a value that he thinks is, I, I think he thinks is clear in and of itself, that of existing and experiencing things as opposed, as opposed to not. He's not making the argument, as I think we'll get into in a bit, it's not that he's saying that this is such a valuable thing that every, that, that we should have more experiencers, right? He's not making, he's not mounting an argument that every possible child born should be born and that we should we should make as many organisms as possible he's saying that once you get a taste of what existence is that becomes a value in and of itself the rest of the calculus of positive and negative existence is just a layer on top of that and i don't yeah and just really quickly i don't know whether he would say that there could be a calculus of negative experience that is so great as to undo the the value of of mere existence but i I don't know that it it would be so problematic to say like let's just accept it by itself neutrally experience with no hedonic tone to it um is if that were possible is a is a good yeah i think that's i think that's the best way to understand it much like the fragmentation of value there there are different kinds of values right there's the value of being alive and then there's the value of being happy or being sad suffering experiencing like well well well-being and it's not that there probably is a certain amount of suffering that would outweigh the value of being alive but the point is if you knew right now that the sum total of your negative experiences would be a little bit worse like that then the sum total of your a little bit lower than the sum total of your positive experiences it still might be worth living like that additional value would put it over the top and that's certainly what some people view about about their own suffering (laughs) this reminds me of (laughs) norm mcdonald has a new special uh on netflix and uh one of the things he says is he's talking about suicide and he says um you know uh whenever whenever somebody like hears about a suicide, a really common reaction is, I, I just don't understand how somebody could do that. And he goes, really? You, you don't understand it? Like, what world have you been living in? Like, you just live in a, ca- in a cotton candy house? Like, of course I understand it. <laughs> so I think we can accept Nagel would say, oh, well, of course, like there are situations where you might say, right. you know, all the rest of it is so bad that I, I no longer want this good to, to continue. Yeah, and it is a good of just this is all you know, Nozick's point in the experience machine. It's actually doing stuff and being an act actually experiencing things. Like it's right. this is he thinks here that like that's a different value than being in a dream and thinking that you would and he's not talking about like virtual reality here, but there's an additional value to actually 
doing the thing and actually experiencing in reality what it is that you're experiencing. And that is a value. It's not, it doesn't override every single other value, but it is a value. Right. And I think I, you know, if there's one thing I can, uh, like I can say that, that I found not very satisfying is that he doesn't spend too much time arguing for that. Right. That's literally, we've been discussing like the first couple of paragraphs. He he starts with that as an assumption. And I think that's fine because like, I don't need to be convinced too much about that. Um, cause I, I seem to live it in that way. Like maybe this explains why you, you see certain old people. It's like every moment is a pain in the ass. If you're really old, it's like every single thing that you have to do, going to the bathroom, going to, it's just, it's miserable. And if you're, uh, if you're me, you're like, what, why would you like want to do this? Like, it just seems like every like minute of your life is like a huge pain in the ass right now. What are you like? What is this doing for you? But it is doing that thing that Nagel is talking about, right? It is, it is life. Just, just experiencing, just yeah. experiencing, yeah. Um, and again, it's something that you can only, that can only be a value once you have it, <laughs> <laughs> right? Right. It's like it's not again. It's not something that he's like, oh, we should, we should, you know, populate the world with as many of these beings as possible. But we'll see um, if that's like maybe he's not he's not saying that. But I wonder to what extent he's committed he might, to that. Yeah. Um, but so 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 if we grant him that, so we're accepting that death is an evil because it is the loss loss of life and not the state of being dead. And then he considers uh, a bunch of objections to that, which is first of all, he says you could question whether anything can be bad for a person, well, a man. Uh, without being positively unpleasant. Specifically, it could be doubted whether there are any kind of evils which consist merely in the deprivation or absence of possible goods which do not depend on someone minding that deprivation, right? The fact that I don't have, that I don't own a yacht or something, and maybe I'd be happier if I, but it's not a deprivation, you know? And so the dead person can't mind that they're dead and so uh right so exactly so he says he he he, he makes i think it's one of my favorite points in in the paper that other people certainly have made which is that it's a it's a pretty narrow view of what badness is to think that it can only be bad if it is currently experienced as unpleasant so one of the examples that he gives is you know imagine <clears throat> imagine that unbeknownst to you everybody actually acts like your friend to your face but they hate you and talk behind your back or your spouse has actually been been cheating on you and nobody actually respects your work you're none the wiser right you seem to be (laughs) filling in the details here (laughs) yeah i'm I'm, I'm (laughs) fleshing out a realistic example uh but you're none the wiser he says i think this is obviously still a bad but what this requires to be called a bad is to get out of this view that a bad is only a harm that can be currently experienced by the person. So he wants this broader conception of bad, and he thinks that it is not, it's not at all a weird claim to say that it is bad for a person 
that they are secretly being betrayed, even though they don't know about it. And it's not just that they might find out about it yeah. and experience that because it would only, it's a very nice point that he makes here. He says, it's not that like, oh, you know, Temler might find out that people have betrayed him and that's why it's bad. No, it's actually bad because betrayal is bad. So upon right. finding out, it's, you know, it's not that moment that actually pisses him off. Like, I wish I hadn't found out about it. It's actually the thought that this whole time he'd been betrayed because betrayal is a bad thing. And even if I never found out it would be bad for me mm-hmm. is, you know, the, is his point. Like, I could die and never find right. out and that would be still have been bad for me even though I never knew anything about it. You know, I, I could see people disagreeing with that but it sounds plausible to me you know and i think this is like this animates a lot of science fiction well what if we're puppets in some like experiment that aliens are running and we're just running out little plays that they want us to run out i mean in some ways that would be bad you know for us even if we never find out that that's the deal right but i mean but even more specifically, I think it's that that it's knowing uh, knowing that you are experiencing this bad is is um, not required for it to be a bad. I guess right. So right. that's right. it's it's just right. and so he uses this to say that this is why breaking promises to people who have just died can still be a bad. Yeah. So so yeah, I think a strict consequentialist would reject this so long as certain conditions were met like, you know, there's no there's no actual consequences, right? If <clears throat> if you were happily deceived your whole life and never knew otherwise and in fact there was no difference in the way people treated you um right? Like you could object, well, people are actually treating you differently when they disrespect you behind your back. But if if it's all the case, I think a strict consequentialist would just disagree here with this. But I I am not a strict consequentialist. I have a score of yeah. only twenty six on the. <laughs> keep reducing it to try to make yourself sexier. <laughs> okay, the, I I I want to go to the third one. It's the one that seems to be. Is the one he's worried about the asymmetry. The third type of difficulty concerns the asymmetry mentioned above between our attitudes towards posthumous and prenatal non-existence. How can the former be bad if the latter is not? So how can it be bad? Like we don't think it's bad. Oh, I wish I was born earlier, but we think it's bad if we die too if we die too early or we don't even think it would have been bad if i wasn't born right so what explains that asymmetry at its most basic what he's saying is that it's the deprivation that's bad and you there is nothing being deprived before you exist so so but there is there's a whole life of beautiful experiences that you could But there's have. the there's no there's no buddy who's deprived. Well there there's is like no, there's no the, you mean there's there, there is, was never anybody that's being There was deprived. never anybody that yeah. that could could be could be said to have anything taken away from them. And so this is I mean one way to think of it is the just the endowment effect, right? Like once you have something, it sucks to lose it. 
right? It sucks more to lose something that you have. So, so we value things we have more than that same thing that we don't yet have. And so once we have something, once we have a, a, a taste, once we've gotten a taste of life, um, it is a much more tragic bad to lose that than it would have been, um, you know, to, to never have had it to begin with. So this is where I wonder how consistent he's being, because I figure he's probably pro-choice. But yeah. we think it's terrible. And, 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 of course, this deprivation view of why death is bad is part of Don Marquis or Don Marquis's argument against abortion, which is that you are depriving the fetus of, of life, and that's what makes killing bad, and that's what makes abortion bad, is that you deprive them of these, these goods. And Nagel is saying, and he even has a little note about this, where it's actually not, we don't think that we're depriving an embryo of future life. But why? Like, by his argument that, you know, you get a taste of it and so now you want it, but we think it's a tragedy when a one-year-old baby dies, right? Or a yeah. two-year-old baby dies and they haven't really gotten a taste of anything that we're really worried about that they're being deprived of. Yeah, I, I think there's, there's a simple answer to this. I think that he actually thinks that it is much less... Uh, for the baby, it, it is less of a tragedy, right? It's that we're, we're caught up in the, the, the pain of the parents. Right. And so his example of, um, you know, a, a full-grown adult who through some traumatic brain injury is reduced to the mental state of an infant, that is a tragedy. It's not the state of being an infant that is a tragedy, it is the deprivation that somebody who was once a fully functioning human adult um, that is now left as a, you know, pooping, crying, like helpless individual. That's what makes it tragic. No, nobody goes around thinking like, oh, my, it's so sad that this infant is, is incapable of, of experiencing everything I experience. Um, so I think it really does boil down to what you've had is now something you can lose. And since an infant hasn't had much, it's much less of a tragedy. But what's interesting is that at a certain point, like you get to a certain age and all of a sudden it becomes more tragic if you die than, than less tragic, right? So maybe as an infant, it's less tragic for yeah. you to when you die. But when you're 20, it's way more tragic when you die than when you're 80. So... What like I guess you just need to get to a certain point where that value of being alive kicks in, or uh, well, this is why I think yeah. yeah, this is where I think that like that that um, that his more general point that deprivation is is the evil is makes sense. That so so the loss of your abilities as you approach old age, as you approach death is i think just a different kind of 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 evil as death because death is is a permanent and complete um eliminating of what you used to have <clears throat> but i would say i would think that he would say you know it's well like suppose that there is a species that can only mature to the mental age of 10 right that's they're at their peak 
there that you know it would be it would be tragic for them to lose that conscious experience we can reach a mental age of whatever some you know some set of abilities and skills and and perception and and realization where that taking that away is is tragic from us um and so so the deterioration is just as tragic it's just the death is the ultimate deterioration yeah yeah, I, it's just sort of funny. Yeah, so I guess it really does depend on what you're, what you're capable of experiencing, and like the yeah, complexity I, of what you're capable of experiencing. And at, at a certain point, really early in your life, it's not much. And so, if you die, like you haven't been deprived. Even this is why flowers for Algernon works. Right. I mean, it's not a tragic story that there's a simpleton. Right. Like there's Yeah. <laughs> or whatever you call it. It's a tragic story that a simpleton is capable of of experiencing. The, is that what the do you right mean whatever I call it? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I haven't actually read Flowers for Algernon. I'm, I'm mostly going on the Simpsons episode that parodied it. Like, uh, like, what's sad about the Simpsons episode is when he actually goes becomes dumb again. It's somebody who has lost this, <laughs> right? Right, and even uh, though he doesn't know that he's lost it, right? It's uh, a bad again. Uh, to getting to his earlier point, yeah. yeah. And so yeah. it becomes a bad. Yeah, that's actually a great example. <laughs> yeah. It is a bad to him now that he has experience that but before he did it wasn't and so uh, here's where i think there's an interesting another interesting point that that nagel makes which is well our natural state of affairs might be you know the average iq is 100 or you know the average person can can do this and this and this we have these skills and abilities and that is sort of what it means to experience life as a human and so depriving us of that is tragic it's not tragic that we don't have an IQ of 200, <clears throat> but he says it is tragic when anybody dies at any age. It's right. not comforting that the average you know, lifespan might be 80. It's not like when we say that somebody died when they're 80 that we're like, oh, perfect. Like they lived out their life perfectly. There is something about experiencing life at all that, and and in some sense that this this trick that our mind pulls that we are indefinite beings that's why every death feels like something to be avoided yeah for the subject for the subject yeah and the, for the we, subject yeah uh, yeah again i wonder like i i wonder if like that <laughs> resonates with like a 96 year old that it's like this massive like homeric ordeal to like take a shit yeah well i think that that's where it's like you know the hedonic part might come in so so to really what you know it. yes yeah right um really what we want to know you know he says um for him it's obvious that dying at 24 is worse than dying at 82 because it's so clear that that a 24 year old is missing out on all those years but like it's not there's not a magic number eighty two. If we if we could extend our life, then it would just set the bar even higher. So dying at eighty two would be tragic if we could live till we were eight hundred and six right. years old. Um, but then he says the trouble is that life familiarizes us with the goods of which death deprives us. 
we are already able to appreciate them as a mole is not able to appreciate vision. No matter when it occurs, death can be said to deprive its victim of what is, in the relevant sense, a possible continuation of life. Because we always feel like it's, yeah. it might be possible to continue life. Right. Yeah. And I think that's right. Like, even if sometimes the hedonic stuff outweighs that, it is sad. Like, when an old person dies who is fairly comfortable and happy... It, it it's it's it seems less tragic because they lived their life and there's plenty of people the vast majority of people die way before they did so it's like it it, it seems almost like you're complaining like like privileged to complain about <laughs> right. it but it's still bad for that right. person it's like there's still a lot more they could have seen so yeah like it seems it's funny because the Nagel points out something that I've thought before which is like it's weird that. There has been no moment in the existence of our species or any other species where death wasn't an inevitability. Yeah. There are features of us by dint of being these creatures that are inevitable and we are comfortable with them. Like, I don't know. I, I don't miss out on the fact that I don't have the ability to fly right. um, by, by dint of the way in which my biology is. Um, and so why is it the case that knowing that since since time has existed people die <clears throat> why doesn't that inevitability comfort us or at least remove some of the bad right. um he says viewed this way death no matter how inevitable is an abrupt cancellation of indefinitely extensive possible goods normality seems to have nothing to do with it this is his claim for the fact that we will all inevitably die in a few score years cannot by himself imply that it would not be good to live longer suppose we were all inevitably going to die in agony physical agony lasting six months would inevitability make that prospect any less unpleasant and why should it be different for a deprivation if the normal lifespan were a thousand years death at 80 would be a tragedy as things are it may just be a more widespread tragedy and this is this is a, again a great last sentence if there is no limit to the amount of life that it would be good to have then it may be that a bad end is in store for us all and this is the part that, at least right now, doesn't. It's not resonant with me. I don't. I don't totally buy it, and I don't feel it. And I think you know, with Nagel, because he's sort of. You're like you're like life is too long, man. This life is no. Too I long. mean, like I love I, I love my life. I, I'm totally happy being alive, but I don't regret that. You know, like if I make it to eighty or ninety or whatever. Um, which you're almost there. Not you're almost a sure bet <laughs> by any stretch of the imagination. Then, like, I don't, I don't feel like if I go, then that's that's okay. Like, you know, uh, and I don't feel in any way like that. that the cord of the de deprivation, it doesn't feel. I don't feel like I'm being deprived. And I think part of that is because that's when people die. You know, that's that's what we get. And so just accept that. I accept that in the same way that I accept that I can't fly or that I don't can't do like echolocation or whatever. But see, yeah. See, I think that you accept it just because it's it's in the distant future. I think that, that it's easier because it's distant. Like I, I think as other people have said, right, like when you're young, you think like, sure, like I'm fine with dying when I'm 70. 
until you're about 68. You're like, no, I was wrong. Like, this is actually pretty good still. Like, right. like I, I want to keep going. And I think that, that if it were the case that lifespan of the average adult male were, were you know, 48, you might actually be like, no, that's right. Death is like life is a value that I want to hold on to. Right. But I think part of it is that you get old and, you know, like my dad, as he was getting older, you know, would say all the time, like, I, I'm, I, I'm more comfortable with this. Yeah. I, I, I see. I think that this is this is it, it feels, I think, when you're there, like part of the natural process i don't think you see that many 92 year olds just like uh, just really upset that they're going to die you know like that's right. just i i mean perhaps perhaps it is it is that the body has worn down right and the brain has worn down and there's a way in which which life isn't what it used to be but but i can imagine i mean i can imagine that as medicine becomes better all that's going to do is sort of push the number up in like a 92 year old. There's nothing about the duration of time which you've spent pondering the inevitability that's doing the work. Right. Because I think that if medicine got us to live to 120 years old, we would start accepting it right around 110. Yeah. Right. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. No, um, but I think that's part of the deal is that this is our natural lifespan. And of course that's been expanded. Um, and by medicine and you know when if 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 it starts feeling like you know if if 80 is the new 60 or whatever then (laughs) then of course i won't think at 80 that um but it does seem like whatever however far they can push it it at a certain point like i do think we 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 kind of like go in for a, a, a smoother landing um, right. if it's part of this natural process and right. and we don't feel like we're getting wrenched from something that is that could otherwise have continued if it weren't for the bad luck of having a certain kind of cancer or right. a certain and, kind of, yeah and maybe that's just maybe that's actually consistent with with what Nagel is saying which is that it is the sense of deprivation that makes death an, an evil like to the extent that you that you realize that there is nothing left to be deprived of, maybe then it's no longer an evil. Um, But to the extent that you still view life as a possibility, then, then it's an evil. Like, um, and goodness um, in life and the good, the value of being alive is a possibility. Right. And at a certain point it's like, well, no, it's not possible because I'm human and humans die. And then that possibility is gone. So would you be – if you were given the option, would you uh, – to be a vampire, would you, would you take it to, to – um, aside from the murdering and stuff, just the living etern- – like living presumably eternally with – And unless, just the like weird sex. And like goth – like goth rings. Yeah, I would stuff. not be <laughs> – I, I think just no for that. Like I just like tr- wearing those clothes and – like the leather, it would just people would just be constantly laughing at me. Okay, it's control for me. that. Control for that. Like, would you, <laughs> would you, if given the option to live a natural life indefinitely until the end of the world, would you pick it? 
And and there's no like you don't have a soul and like yeah like all that stuff is gone. You just get to live forever. Yeah, imagine there's no heaven. You just <laughs> that's even hard to conceive of. But okay, <laughs> I I yeah I think I probably would. Yeah, like, I why would take not? It just right? because the option yeah. is the other option is dying. <laughs> is dying right. Yeah, <laughs> uh, uh, and you know the vampires seem healthy too. <laughs> They're pretty strong. Um, this reminds me of a, a recent paper. If I find it, I'll post it in, in the show notes. A recent paper that um, came out showing that Buddhist monks actually show more fear of death. This is Sean Nichols just, and, and Nina Sean Nichols. Yeah. We're going to talk That's about right. this oh, in, in our live VBW that we haven't even. That's right. Uh, or at least recorded live. Recorded live. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, um, so it won't be live, right? Well, we'll talk about, about this paper because I haven't read the paper yet, but it is, it is funny to think that the people who themselves have the most clearly explicit views that the self is nothing and that would, death like oblivion is the, like the thing that, that you strive for <laughs> yeah but they'd freak out even more i think it's because whether i don't think it's by accident but like their techniques have made living uh, so much more of a pleasant experience <laughs> that they you know naturally <laughs> like naturally was... don't want to die you know like cuz they're all they're never stressed out they're never right. you know like they're like they're at this even kind of compassionate even keel just happy aware really appreciating the present moment like of course you don't want to die then <laughs> What a paradoxical, what a paradoxical effect of like, you're like more likely to shit your pants when like a gun is held to your face if you're a Buddhist monk. Um. <laughs> right. Everything that you've been working towards. But the funny thing is, it's like the reason it's like good. It's like the way you get yourself to fear death is by actively working towards thinking death is good. Like the, that's how you <laughs> fear death more. There's something about the technique that they work for that, like, you know, makes you appreciate life more. So, yeah, I don't know. Uh, Maybe it's just their their they've developed an inherent sense of superiority, and what they fear is a world without them. <laughs> I fear that. <laughs> I fear for the world. It's not me. I'll be dead, so it won't bother yeah. me. But I, I do fear for the world. <laughs> <laughs> should we wrap this up join us next time oh we have let's uh before we go let's just announce a couple of exciting things we have uh molly crockett coming up fairly soon yeah. Lori santos to talk about her world famous course now the good life psychology good life. and the good life at yale two veteran two very bad wizards veterans yes I don't and who are now much more famous than when they first appeared That's on very bad I'm not saying correlation is causation, but aliens. But it is in this case. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> All right. Join us next time. The greatest boss has spoken. Pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. Who are you? Who are you? A very bad man. I'm a very good man. Good man. They think he thought and with no more brains than you have. Pay no attention to that man.